Well, let's pray and uh, we'll get into our text. Father, we are glad to be here this morning as your people to worship you in spirit and truth. We're thankful for all the mothers who have carried us and given birth to us and changed our diapers and fed us and been up with us in the middle of the night to comfort us. And Father, we just um, thank you for the great sacrifice of mothers and how they love us and give so much to take care of us. And Father, we just ask that today they would be honored. We also ask that you would give us understanding into our text this morning that you would help us to see the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his great commission. And Father, that in understanding um, our text, we would leave here today uh, eager and wanting to give you glory in how we live our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our text this morning is Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49, and uh, we're going to read it in pieces as we work our way through it, so you kind of get the, the thrust because it's kind of a larger text. Uh, the, the text is a little different than most because it actually happens in two different time periods. It's kind of hard to tell this, but as we will find out, the first part of our text is still Resurrection Sunday morning, the, or actually evening, the, the, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, that evening is where our text begins. The end of our text, uh, it, ends with 40 days after that, and we'll see how that is as we work our way through it. So the women uh, in the beginning of the text have just arrived to tell all the disciples, the apostles and many other disciples, maybe even about 500 of them, uh, just how excited they were because the tomb was opened and two angels appeared to them and told them that Jesus was risen. Not only that, but Simon Peter has returned, and he has seen the Lord. Meanwhile, as uh, this was going on, uh, these two disciples from Emmaus have showed up because they were kind of uh, met by Jesus along the road. They didn't recognize him, and when they got to Emmaus, they began to eat, and, and they recognized him, and Jesus vanished from their sight. So all of these people are all sitting down together, and they're trying to convince each other that Jesus is risen from the dead. But most of them still don't believe. It's just too out there. They'd like to believe it, and it sounds like a very large fishtail. It's just so incredible and so wonderful that their minds aren't quite ready to go there yet. And so this is where our text begins this morning, where I just want to point out to you two facts about Jesus and two truths that all believers who want to follow Jesus uh, need to obey in order to give him glory. The first is Jesus is resurrected uh, and glorified. This is the first truth. Look at verse 36. It says, while they were uh, telling these things, uh, in other words, they, they're talking about the angels and what the two disciples saw uh, in Jesus and the road to Emmaus and the sermon he preached to them and all this stuff and that Peter saw the resurrected Lord. Uh, verse 36, while they were telling each other these things, he himself, Jesus, stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. Now that would be a shocker. He didn't come in through the door. He appeared. 
There he is, right in front of their faces. Wow. Their eyes are wide. They're looking at each other to see if the other person sees what they're seeing. Because it's so incredible. Look at verse 37 where we begin to see their uncertainty and disbelief. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. Three things are mentioned here. One is they were startled, a word that is translated in Luke 21.9 as terrified. That's what it means, to really be scared. Da! Type of, you know, scared, bad. Then it says... Not only that they were startled, but they were frightened, which means to be thrown into fear or a terrible fright or to be very afraid. These first two words are just talk about just trauma because Jesus just appears in front of them. In addition, being scared out of their wits, they don't believe Jesus rose bodily from the dead, though he's standing there right in front of them because the text says they thought that they were seeing a spirit, a ghost. That Jesus was some sort of apparition. And he wasn't a real physical person in a body in front of them. Look at verse 38. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Jesus knows their thoughts. He knows they're having a hard time believing in him. And his question though is kind of funny and kind of a rebuke. You know, why are you troubled? We've never seen anybody appear out of nowhere. (laughs) Especially somebody that we saw tortured and crucified three days ago. It's scary. The word troubled means anxious, distressed, perplexed, agitated, unsettled, thrown into confusion. It literally is a word that literally means to be shaken up. They were shaken up. And it's pretty obvious. And you can just imagine the fear on their faces as they, they... Hear Jesus asking them questions. Why are you troubled? Why are doubts arising in your heart? And they're just, they don't know what to say. The word doubts speaks of deliberations, um, reasonings, or disputations in the mind, which tells us they're trying to figure out how this couldn't be Jesus. It just couldn't be Jesus. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything that was so incredible, you just thought, no way, no way. Well, that's what they were doing. And their minds are racing, thinking, how can we explain this one away? I mean, some terrible start to the movement, isn't it? Uh, Jesus appears to the believers who aren't believing. But that's how it was. They're doubting. And I think if we saw someone tortured and killed and wrapped in many cloths and spices and sealed in a tomb and they showed up just out of nowhere in the middle of the room, we might have a similar response. But I started thinking about this and I thought, why would we have a similar response? I mean, why why did they respond this way? I mean, it's very easy on our side of the fence to say, hey, you know, they should have responded. Uh, They should have said, Jesus, you're here. We've been waiting for you. You said you were going to rise from the dead. Man, we've been looking forward to seeing you. Sit down. But that's not what they do. We know from Hebrews 10.38 
That God's righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, his soul has no pleasure in him. Quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And we also know that Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And we know that verse 6 of Hebrews 11 says, and without faith it is impossible, impossible to please God. For the one who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him implied though he is invisible. So faith is absolutely necessary. Now, if I were to give you a little quiz and I were to say, now, do we need to live by faith? Yes or no? Okay, you got that one right. Do we, if we don't live by faith, is God pleased? No. Uh, Is faith the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen? Can even tiny faith in an all-powerful God do incredible things? See, you got 100%. 100%. Now follow me with this. Most of the disciples who were there and the apostles have followed Jesus for three years. They have... Place their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. They saw Jesus do miracles. They heard Jesus teach about the scriptures and the prophets and do his own teaching. They saw Jesus raise people from the dead even about a week before this. They saw that, Lazarus. Jesus personally told them many times he was going to die and then rise again on the third day. And now, how are they responding? In unbelief. You think, that is, that is amazing. You know, that is amazing to me. It just seems that we should have more faith, but in a situation like this, it just doesn't, it it reveals the weakness of their faith, doesn't it? It just reveals how little our faith is. It's very easy to say, well, yeah, you know, you need to believe God. But then when it's time for us to believe God, ah, we're scared and we're doubting and we're trying to find ways out of it. If you really believed and had strong faith in what Jesus said and what the scripture said, when Jesus showed up, you'd go, here he is, everybody. Praise God. There wouldn't be fear and terror and doubt. There would be an eagerness to receive Jesus, an anticipation that he could show up any second and you'd be looking for him. Turn back to Luke chapter 16. I just want to show you something uh, that we've talked about before and it's such an important thing and this is such a good place to just seal the deal on it, hopefully in your minds. There's so many people in the world today who want to do miracles and fabricate miracles and their thought is is if we can do miracles we can get people to believe in Jesus no you can't let me just show you this this is this is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus we're going to look at Luke 16 verse 27 and following the rich man is in agony in the flames of hell Lazarus is being comforted in Abraham's bosom the rich man says starting in verse 27 then i beg you father that you send him Lazarus to my father's house For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. His thought is, listen, could you please resurrect Lazarus from the dead and go back, send him back as the resurrected missionary? 
Then my brothers, they would believe. Then Moses, or Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. In other words, let them read their Bible. But then, the rich man, thinking he knows more than Abraham, but he said, verse 30, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. This is so clear in the text before us because all the believers, the believers won't even believe the miracle of the resurrection. And Jesus is standing right there in front of them. Miracles don't produce faith. Miracles point to the object or messenger who points to the object of faith, which is Jesus Christ. So never think that you need miracles. No, God's word is what you need. Moses and the prophets, and now the New Testament. Faith is a gift of God's grace. A gift of God's grace. We see this in passages like uh, Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Not of yourselves. Or Philippians, what is it, 129, for to you has been granted uh, not only to uh, believe, but to suffer for his namesake. It has been granted you to believe. Look at verse 39 where Jesus gives them more empirical data. He's, he's, He's giving them all this information to see if he can win them over. He says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And who knows, maybe somebody came forward like this and and they were going to touch him. You know, it's just like, whoa, they're thinking if I try to touch him, my hand will go through him. No, no. Jesus says, listen, I have flesh and bones. Come here, touch me. You can feel me. I'm tangible. I got a body. I'm not a spirit, I'm not a ghost, I'm not an apparition, a vapor. I'm real. I'm a person, resurrected. Now, I know some of you may be thinking what I was thinking. But doesn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, that flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then how could Jesus say, here, I have flesh and bones? Obviously, Jesus is going to be in heaven, and he's going to be glorified into heaven. So how in the world, if flesh and blood don't inherit the kingdom of God, could Jesus have that? Well, we're not going to talk about it. No, I'll talk about it. I was just messing with you. First, let's consider the whole verse of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Always look at the context. The entire verse reads this. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Here, flesh and blood are paralleled with perishable, and kingdom of God is paralleled with imperishable. In other words, all Paul is saying is that your decaying, sin-cursed, 
disease-ridden, creaky old outer man is not going to inherit the kingdom of God because it's perishable. And then what does he say right after that in the following context? You're going to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And then he talks about our glorification, right? That's all he's saying. That's all he's saying. Flesh, flesh and blood, he's just saying, is a, is a reference to our mortality. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 15. It's like, uh, it's like when, when Jesus asked uh, Peter in Matthew 17 or 16, who do men say I am? And he said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father. No mortal person revealed this to you, but the immortal God. So there is no problem here. When you are resurrected and glorified, you will have a body. Physical body. Granted, it's going to be like the body you have now. And in some ways, it is your body. Because Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says, abstain from immorality because of the resurrection. You're going to be resurrected in that body. But it's also going to be a completely different body in that it's going to be glorified and it's going to be fit for all eternity. And look at verse 40, where it says, and he said to them, and he showed them his hands and feet. He goes, look at, look at, I've got feet and I've got hands. You know, I'm a whole person. We know that when he appeared later uh, to Doubting Thomas, um, he said, here, put your hands in the nail prints, in the scars, feel them. I find this very interesting. You who are older saints can you know, relate to this one better than the younger people who think they're invincible. But... When you die and you're resurrected and glorified, do you think you'll be all stiff and and creaky? (laughs) Hunched over, bald, missing teeth, suffering from arthritis, still wearing glasses in heaven, bony hands? I mean, do you think that's going to happen? No, of course not. You will be physically regenerated. You, the, the effects of sin and the curse which have caused you to age will be undone. You won't be all old and broken down and toothless for all eternity. <laughs> all those teeth they pulled because they were cracked or abscessed are going to be replaced. Your eyesight's going to be made perfect and so is your hearing. I said so is your hearing. <laughs> You're going to be fixed up better than you ever were in this life. Than you ever were in this life. You will be totally glorified. Unlike Jesus. Who will always carry on his body the scars. The scars that will remind believers for all the ages of his love for them. They will be his memorials, his reminders to us sinners that he suffered and died and was nailed to the cross for us. People were 
wedding, wedding rings as symbols. You know, when I do a wedding, they exchange the rings and they have vows to love and to cherish and till death do they part and through better or for worse and sickness and health and they exchange those rings and they're talking about it as they are exchanging the rings this ring i give to you and you know token and pledge of a constant faith and abiding love and when they wear those rings they look at them and they look at each other's rings those rings say i am yours and you are mine And when we see Jesus in heaven and every time we approach him and we get a glimpse of the back of his hand or his palm or his feet, we will realize I am his and he is mine. He died for me. And those marks prove it. Look at verse 41 to 43. And while they were, they still could not believe it. I mean, they still can't believe it. Jesus says, okay, look at me, look at me, touch me. Look at, I got appendages. Because there are joy and amazement. So things are getting better. At least they have gone from terror and fright to joy and amazement, but they're still not believing it. It's like they just, they just can't bring themselves to believe it. He said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it. And ate it before them. And they're all looking. And he's chewing. He's chewing. They're going, look at that. His mouth works. Look at that. He's swallowing. The fish is disappearing. It's not falling on the floor. Whoa. And then he says in verse 44. Now he said to them, these are my words. Which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And by the way, this is one of the classic texts in all the New Testament that mentions the three divisions of the Hebrew scriptures. You have the Torah, the law, you have the prophets, the Nevi'im and the Psalms, the Kituvim uh, and These are the three divisions of the Hebrew scriptures. And he says, in all the scriptures, they talk about these things. And I have fulfilled all these things. And now I'm resurrected, like I told you. And I'm standing before you, resurrected in a glorified body. If you were here last week, we kind of traced some of the the prophecies of Jesus' suffering through the Old Testament. And we learned that the Jews had a hard time receiving these because they were so oppressed for so long by the Gentiles that they just couldn't wait for that day when the Messiah would come, their king, their savior, their deliverer, who would beat up the Gentile nations, would exalt Israel and establish his throne in Zion, which is so crystal clear in the Hebrew scriptures. It's so obvious, it's so clear, and they were so anticipating that, that all the passages about the Messiah dying and suffering and rising again, they could, they just couldn't see him. They just couldn't, it never entered their minds. It was not on their radar. It was not a possibility. The Messiah cannot die. He's got to be the victor. And so they were blind to Jesus' first coming and his purpose for making atonement at his first coming by dying as the Lamb of God for the sins of the world. They couldn't understand the text about the resurrection because they couldn't understand the death of Christ. 
Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11, speaking of the Messiah, says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. I mean, what does that say? That says he's going to die, but he's not going to decay. He goes on to say in verse 11, You will make known the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. There is going to be death, but no decay. But then there's going to be this glorification forever. Peter and Paul both quote Psalm 16 in relationship to Jesus' resurrection and glorification. Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12, the latter half of that text, which of course talks about the Messiah's suffering and dying as a sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel. And he says that towards the end of the chapter, listen to this, listen to how many references there are to the Messiah's death, but also to his, his reign, his glorification. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself a guilt offering. Die. He's going to die. However, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He's going to be alive. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He's going to die. Therefore, I will lot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. He's going to live. Because he poured out himself to death. He's going to die. Do you see it? I mean, it's all the way through there. And he was numbered with transgressors. He himself bore the sin of many and interceded for transgressors. The whole way through, he's going to live. He's going to die. He's going to live. He's going to die. It's like, man, are you schizophrenic? What is going on? You're bipolar. No. No. Isaiah just knew that the Messiah had to die to make atonement for the sins of the people who would believe in him by faith, he had to bear their sins in his body on the cross and be that perfect human sacrifice so that anybody through faith in him would receive the free gift of eternal life. Well, how could these things be true? The only way is he must die. He must be resurrected. He must be glorified. Secondly, Jesus grants illumination. Jesus stands before them. He's physical proof of the resurrection. He reminds them of the scriptures. He reminds, he says, look at me. He says, touch me. He says, I've got hands and feet. He says, give me a piece of, piece of fish so I can eat it. I mean, he's, you know, laying on. Their fear has subsided. It's replaced with joy and amazement, as you have already said. Look at verse 45. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And this is when everything changes. But Luke grossly and in a great way condenses a lot of stuff in that verse. You say, why is that? Because we know this from the other gospel accounts, especially from Acts chapter 1 verse 3, where Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, says in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, Speaking of the disciples, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So all of that, all of those appearing convincing proof and speaking to them of the things concerning the kingdom of God happened over a period of 40 days between his resurrection and Pentecost. 
And all of those 40 days are all crushed into verse 45 of our text. And he just says, yeah, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. People have wondered, why, why didn't he go? Why didn't he tell us more? Well, he did in Acts chapter 1 verse 3. Yeah, but why didn't he tell us more in Luke? Well, well the commentators like to talk about it. But a, a lot of times when you bought a, a parchment, it was only so long. So as you begin to write, you thought, uh-oh, I'm getting towards the end. I've got to finish. Have you ever been writing a card to somebody and you start getting carried away and pretty soon you realize you're on the back and the corner's coming? <laughs> and you're going, uh-oh, okay, well, happy day, bye. Okay. And then you have this little tiny signature in the bottom. And they think that's maybe what happened to Luke as he got to the end because he has one of the larger gospels and he gives a lot of the detail. And as he's going through this and he's talking about things, he realizes, oh no, um, you know, I'm getting towards the end. And maybe he had a scribe who's saying, listen, parchment's almost done. You better close out. Okay, well, we just won't tell about the 40 days. He, he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. And that was all he said. So by this statement... In Acts 1-3, and what the other Gospels tell us, what happened is, Jesus appeared to the disciples, uh, first to Peter on Resurrection Sunday, and then later that night to the disciples, uh, or later that day uh, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then later that night to those same disciples and all the other ones together, which is what the beginning of our text is talking about, and then there were 40 days where Jesus told them, go to Galilee and wait for me there. And of course, they went there and they waited for a time. We don't know how long. Peter, being the impatient one, says, listen, I'm not waiting around forever. I'm going fishing. And remember what happened. Jesus has to appear again to them. He does the same miracle he did in Luke 5 to get them to follow him the first time. Now they've gone back to fishing. So he does the same miracle. Hey, why don't you cast your fish, you know, nets to get some fish? And they're thinking, oh, brother, you know, we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. They do. They catch this giant crushing amount of fish they come in they realize it's the lord that's when jesus asked peter peter do you love me unconditionally yes lord you know that i like you do you love me unconditionally you know that i like you do you even like me i was like then that's when he wanted them to know listen you're not going to be fishermen anymore for fish i am in control of the fish you go fishing again, you'll never catch another fish again. You're going to fish for men now. So leave the boat. Sell your boats and nets on eBay and come follow me. I need you to carry out the plan. And so that has, all that happened while they were at Galilee. And when they were at Galilee, it also what happened is what we read in Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. Go therefore to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that He commanded you. That happened in Galilee also. And so Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, that Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brethren during this 40-day period. And then in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 15, he goes on to say that he also appeared to James, his brother, and then to all the apostles, so they all seem to have specific individual appearances from the Lord. And so all those 40 days are all crushed into verse 45. And... 
That's what it means when he opened their minds. It wasn't this instantaneous thing. Yes, he began to give them understanding, but it took him a long time so he could explain all the scriptures, teach them all that they needed to understand, so they finally all got a clue so that when he was gone, they would go out and teach the truth, write the New Testament, and get it all right. And so that's what happened. You know, you can read your Bible... You can be a Bible scholar and still not understand the truth. You can know Hebrew and Greek. And unless the Holy Spirit illumines you to the truth, you just, you just won't have a clue. It just, it just isn't going to make sense. You can know the facts. You can know the stories. But you can't experience the life-changing truths of the Word of God. You just won't get it. This is so clear. We've looked at it before. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 27. At, this, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. God is the one who reveals the truth. And he hides the truth. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. If Jesus doesn't will that you know the Father, you won't know the Father. You'd know about the Father, but you won't know the Father. Matthew chapter 13 verse 11 is the section where Jesus is teaching all the parables and the disciples come to him and say, Lord, what's going on here? We don't quite understand this. I mean, you're trying to teach, you're trying to tell people about the kingdom. We understand that. You know, we're believing that you're Messiah. And so why don't you just tell people flat out? Why are all these parables? It seems very cryptic and it's like you're hiding the truth from people. Jesus then says to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them... It has not been granted. Okay. It's almost like God's sovereign. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Now we, believers, have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. I mean, it's so clear that the scriptures teach we are taught the word of God by the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit revealing the truth to you, you're dumber than a stump. It's like, man, get a clue. You just can't quite get it. Herbert Lockyer in his work all about the Holy Spirit writes, without a doubt, There are many things, even about the Bible, one can know apart from the revelation of the Spirit. But for the deep insight into the secrets of God, we are entirely dependent upon the divine revealer. As it has been expressed, the horse and his rider may see the same magnificent piece of statuary in the park. The one may be delighted with it as a work of human genius, but upon the dull eye of the other, it makes no impression. And for the reason... Uh, And for the reason that it takes a human mind to appreciate the work of a human mind. Likewise, only the Spirit of God can know and make known the thoughts and teachings and revelations of God. End quote. That is so good. You know, it's like taking the masterpiece of, you know, a a Rembrandt or something and putting it before the horse. It's like, "Mm, nothing. That's how the Bible is. That's how the Bible is to unbelievers, unless the Holy Spirit illumines them to the truth. It's just 
a cold, dead piece of ancient literature. I mean, you see it when you talk to people. You know, a lot of times we forget because if you know Christ and you love studying the Bible and you see all these cool things in there and you want to tell people. And then when you tell them, oh, check it out. And then they go, hmm. And you're thinking, what is the deal? The horse. Think of the horse. They're just, it's just, you know, you, you take the Bible and you give it to a horse and, you know, they'd probably chew on it because of the salt on this, the leather part. But, you know, that's it. It's like, yeah, it's just a book. Doesn't do anything for them. Just like it doesn't do anything unless the Holy Spirit illumines the truth. It just doesn't do anything. God must reveal the truth. And so we learn some things from this, important things. First, we need to remember that God is the revealer of truth. God's the one who reveals the truth. And second, that when we study, when we read, when we meditate on the scripture, it might be a good idea to ask God for help. Since the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us understanding, instead of just saying, I'm going to figure this out on my own, why don't you ask God to help you? If you're doing evangelism, if you're telling somebody for, about Christ, then shoot up some arrows. You know, if it happens spontaneously, if you're doing a purposeful assault on some place or somebody, then pray beforehand and ask that God would go with you and reveal the truth to people so they could understand it. And fourth, realize there is no corner in the market for truth. The Holy Spirit reveals truth to all unbelievers. Third, Jesus' followers are to preach the repentance to all nations. From what we can piece together, what happens now is we've moved ahead. Okay, verse 45 is kind of the summary statement of everything happened that during that 40 days. They have seen Jesus on Resurrection Sunday, and then we know for certain eight days later. Then they've gone to Galilee. They've been there for about a month. They've uh, seen Jesus. He's instructed them. He's taught them. He's appeared to more than 500 of the brethren. He's told them to go back to Jerusalem to wait for there until the, the promise of the Spirit would come. And that's when verse 46 picks up because now we're like right before Jesus ascends as we shall learn next week. But... Verse 46 says, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. So now he is summarizing what he told them right after he rose from the dead and what he told them repeatedly before he died. That the Christ had to suffer. This was the big stumbling block in the mind of most Jews. They couldn't quite get it that the Messiah had to die. And so Jesus, as always, anchors his statements in the truth of the word of God. A lot of times you don't notice this. He doesn't appeal to experience. He doesn't appeal to feelings. He says, he says, according to the scriptures, it's according to the scriptures as it is written. You know, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, I make known to you the gospel which I preach to you, by which you receive, by which you stand, unless you believe in vain that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. I mean, the scriptures are the anchor of truth. 
And so having accomplished the work that he came to do, having opened his disciples' minds, having trained them over this 40-day period and and answered all their questions and got them all squared away so they're all tricked out, now understanding everything, he says, listen, it was written the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And then he says, look at verse 47 and 48, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So this is Jesus's final great commission. The first one is recorded in Matthew, given earlier. This one's given Jerusalem right before he ascends. And notice... Notice in here we have the rare, endangered doctrine of repentance. Which is more rare today than the spotted owl. Why is that? Why is that? Well, I'll tell you why it is. Because some theologians and preachers who were well-respected, decided that repentance was the work of man and wasn't necessary for salvation. And they said to add works to salvation is a heresy. Therefore, if you preach repentance, you're preaching a heresy. And a lot of preachers stopped preaching it. I think this is the number one reason why so many churches are filled with people who profess to know Christ, but with their deeds deny Him. Because they have not yet repented. They thought, these theologians did, that they were defending salvation by grace alone through faith alone. But what they were really doing is altering the gospel. Most preachers bought the lie. And that's why you can go to church after church today. You could die and petrify in the pew before you ever heard anybody call anybody to repentance. I find this amazing. All you got to do is read the Bible. And it is clear. John the Baptist comes preaching repentance. Jesus comes preaching repentance. Jesus said twice in Luke 13, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He sent the disciples out to preach repentance. Paul on Mars Hill in front of a bunch of Gentiles in Acts 17 declares that God is now commanding all people everywhere To repent. That's pretty universal. Jesus says that repentance for the forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's why I love the Baptist churches in Russia. They don't give any of this, ask Jesus in your heart stuff. Yeah, why don't you come forward and pray a prayer? They say, you need to repent. And people know that what that means is, I need to leave my sinful former life. I need to turn my back on my sins and whatever it is I'm living for and trusting in, whether it be myself or somebody else or some pleasures or whatever it is, I need to repent of that, turn from that to Christ and receive Christ by faith. A lot of people say, well, isn't that adding human works, though, to salvation by grace? No. Repentance is no more a work of man than believing is a work of man. The scriptures say over and over that it is God who grants us repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. Just like he grants us faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. 
to you it has not only been granted, granted for Christ's sake to believe him, but to suffer for his sake. So faith is granted, but what about that? Yeah. That you need to be patient and kind. That Why? So that God might grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth, Paul says. It's all the way through Acts. that When the Jews heard that the Gentiles had come to faith, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that also leads to faith. It is so crystal clear. You cannot believe in Jesus Christ for salvation without turning from, letting go of, turning your back on, whatever it is you're living for before that. There is no, okay, well, I know I'm an adulterer and a drug user and a thief, and then I'll bring Jesus into the group. No, no, you're clinging to those. You're not clinging to Jesus. You're clinging to Jesus. You're not clinging to those repentance from sin. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man, his thoughts and let him turn to the Lord and to our God. And he will find compassion. He will be forgiven a turning from a receiving. They're both necessary. And yet we have this generation of people now who think all I need to do is have mental information about who Jesus is and what he did and believe that intellectually, those facts, but cling to my sin. And I'm a Christian. No, you're still lost. In the latest phenomena, we see all these churches now that are starting to sprout up. They're just exploding, some of them. I mean, exploding. And they have these really young pastors who are really excited. Contemporary music, huge bands, lights, you know, just the whole thing. It's kind of like a concert where some guy talks about truth. But you would die the death waiting for somebody to call you to repentance. Of course, church discipline is never done either. Why? Because people would bolt for the exits. They'd abandon ship like rats from a sinking vessel. They mistake feeling good with worshiping God. They mistake being comfortable and having fun with pleasing God. What is missing from their so-called gospel? Repentance. Repentance. Repentance, which is the initial act of, I am pitching everything. I am selling all. To acquire the pearl of great price. And then I'm going to live my life. Every time I turn back to whatever sin I'm going to wallow in. Whatever mire I'm going to flip around in. I'm going to keep repenting of it all my life. I'm going to live a life of repentance. Why? So the church can be holy. So God can be glorified. So he can bless us. You can attract believers into a building and call it church. But it's not the church unless the saints arrive. Saints being the holy ones. That's what saint means. True believers are holy ones. And in every local church, there are those who are true believers who get entangled in sin now and then. But listen. If the majority of people in the local church are entangled in sin, then the church begins to die. The blessings of God are removed. If we all dress nice, if we come to church, if we speak Christianese to one another, if we sing songs, 
If we give some money, we listen to the sermon, and we go home, but we don't repent of our sins, it gives God no glory. Our worship is unacceptable. You have to live a life of repentance or it doesn't work. Verse 48 says, and you're witnesses of these things, Jesus says. You disciples of mine, you who've lived with me for these three years, you who saw me die, you who now see me resurrected, you are my witnesses. You get out there. The word witnesses is the word we get martyr from. It's really the, a transliteration of, of, of the Greek into the word martyr. At first, it just meant to be a witness. But later on, so many people gave their life for Christ, telling other people about Jesus, that it became to mean to die for Jesus if necessary. To tell people about Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection unto death. You are to be my unto death witnesses. It's a responsibility of every believer, not just some. Fourth and finally, Jesus' followers are giving power to obey Jesus' command. You know, and if you, whenever you start talking about witnessings, there's people like, oh, I wish I could do this, but it's so scary. I tried this once and this guy just attacked me. I remember when I was a young Christian, I had all these friends and now they're not my friends anymore because I told them about Jesus and I don't want everybody in the world to hate me. And it's kind of fearful because you think, well, what if they attack me? What if they reject me? What if, you know, they don't like me anymore? What if they call me names? What if they're mean? What if they scream? Be encouraged. Look at verse 49, where Jesus reminds all believers of the assistance they will receive in fulfilling the great commission. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high, which we know is going to happen right at Pentecost. Jesus' course is speaking of the Holy Spirit that every single believer would receive, that dwells permanently in every single believer, that you have the Holy Spirit of God, power from on high dwelling in you. Imagine, imagine taking a really nice, you know, luxury sports car and just, you know, transporting it back into the early 1800s and plop it down in some England. And people see it, they're like, what is that? I don't know, it just showed up, man. It's so shiny, it's hard, it's got rubber wheels and they're looking at us going oh man and they're checking it out and they're maybe somebody figures out they grab it and the door pops and oh it opens and they open it up and they're going it smells funny what's that smell they don't know they haven't appreciate the smell of new plastic yet and um leather and so they're looking at it and you know what they go oh this is amazing this is a gift from god and let's let's push it into the open square and there it sits and then you take somebody, you know, from our age and you transport them back there and say, uh, town mayor, come and, and sit here in this seat. And let me show you what this baby can do. And you close the door and you turn on your MP3 player. Don't freak them out with anything too modern. Let them to listen to Volvaldi or something. A Bach. Anyways, you t- turn on some tunes. He's sitting there, his eyes are wide. They go, check this out. You turn the key or push the button and boom. Whoa. Lights come on. 
Let's go for a spin. I mean, imagine how amazing that would be. That's how it is. If everybody shows up to church filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how it is. When people come and gather together and they all know Christ and they all have the Holy Spirit in them. They're all constantly repenting of their sins. They're all charged. They're worshiping God in spirit and truth. It's just power. But I'm telling you, you take that luxury car and rip out half the parts out of the engine, it's not going anywhere. Just like the church. You know, if only 20% of the church are getting on it, walking in holiness, or 30%, or 50%, or 60%, or 75%, I mean, how would you like it if 25% of your organs weren't working? You would be not working. And what happens is, if there is unholiness in the church... The church doesn't work like it's supposed to. So please, if you're living in sin, repent. Repent of your sins and see what God could do through Calvary Bible Church. If we all come on Sunday morning, all willing to sacrificially give and sing in spirit and truth and and encourage one another and use our gifts And do what we're supposed to do. And then we would make a huge impact on one another and on our community. We'd have zeal. We'd have excitement. We'd see the blessing of God just overflowing. But until that happens, we're lamed. And the greater the sin is, the less the blessing of God. Jesus has been resurrected and glorified. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, gives people the ability to know the truth. Jesus' followers are to preach repentance to all nations. And Jesus' followers receive power from on high through the Holy Spirit so they can do that. I'm going to pray now. I want you to pray with me. I'm going to read Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. Verses 14 through 21 in closing. And as I read this, I want you to imagine what Calvary Bible Church would be like if everybody shows up filled with the Holy Spirit. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God, that to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.